Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's check in with a professional, see what it all means. We do that with Marcus Moore, Assistant Portfolio Manager at Zio Capital Advisors. Marcus, you know, in these equity markets, at least, we're seeing this volatility over the last six, seven, eight trading sessions, kind of 1% moves in either direction. What does that tell you other than, I guess, if you're a good trader, this is the kind of market you like? What do you make out of it? Um, and first of all, thanks for having me today. Um, actually, it's interesting. We were having that conversation today, actually, in the office. And, See, I was well, eavesdropping virtually. on you guys. <laughs> virtually. Um, and I've been, I've felt for some time now that the market has just lacked a direction. Um, it's felt that way at least since, you know, late summer. Um, I think w there's so many headlines and so many things to be concerned about. Um, you've got obviously supply chains, inflation, um, employment, um, people try to get back, um, Delta variant. And so all of these things, oh, political with the, with the, you know, we have a deal reached now, but, you know, we weren't sure what that was going to look like, you know, just yesterday. Um, and so with all of that, I think the market understands that there are a lot of risk out there. And so when those risks pop to the surface, I think it's a response. The market response has been to move and move relatively aggressively. Um, we felt for some time that there was more volatility to come in the market than we've, when we're seeing that. And so um, to some extent, this is what I was, I've been expecting more of. Mm. Um, I felt up throughout most of uh, 2021 has been relatively benign one-way upward traffic. Yeah. Um, I feel like this, given where we are with all of the things that we have in front of us to deal with, um, this makes sense to me that we're seeing the volatility that we ha that we have recently. Well, and Marcus, I wonder how this translates to the bond market as well, because for a long time, the bond market was sending a different signal than the stock market was. The stock market continuing to climb the wall of worry and yet yield staying really low, reflecting that there was still some kind of you know, hesitation out there. Now yields are higher than they were, but still around, you know, 1.5%. They're relatively low. Can you be a buyer of bonds in this environment? I mean, I think, um, you know, you'll let me talk my book. Uh, as if someone <laughs> who focuses on high yield, uh, I definitely think there's still, uh, high yield is still relatively attractive. Um, I think the benefits in high yield currently are the fact that while we do have a lot of kind of concerns and headwinds in the short term, Fundamentally, a lot of these companies are performing much better. Um, I think I looked at the S&P estimate for Q2 earnings. Um, they grew versus Q2 19 about 17%. And so that's, as an S&P as a whole, that suggests that big picture. Now, again, there are some winners and there are some losers in that. But big picture, we're kind of well beyond, quote, unquote, recovery and kind of moving into a kind of phase or a period of growth. And so – Higher EBITDA for us means fundamentally better companies, more cash flow. And so that's an attractive thing. If you think about high yield right now, um, the makeup has more double B um, rated bonds in it than it has at any other point in its history. Um, and so you still have a lot of high quality names within the portfolio. And then from a duration standpoint, the average duration for high yield right now is three and a half, three and a half years mm -hmm. um, relative to investment grade, which is eight and a half. So as you think about where you'd rather be in, an, in a rising interest rate environment, I'm comfortable taking, you know, high yield with improving credit, stronger credits, and much less duration. 
Marcus, talk to us about credit quality. It's I've been actually just amazed, you know, being a former credit analyst myself, how well corporate America's done. And I, is that simply a focus of, you know, as we came out of this 18-month pandemic, is that a, just a function of the Fed was kind of backstopping everybody and we had a lot of fiscal stimulus? Well, I mean, definitely. I mean, you can't, I, mean <laughs> I think uh, the Fed has been a friend to markets for some time now, and it definitely was a friend to markets during this period. Um the ability to access capital at a time which there was great uncertainty was very important. Um, and then the other piece of Fed stimulus is that it put a lot of money in consumers' pockets. And so as we got through kind of the initial rollout phase and the, the I, I don't, I, I guess it's, I call it the reopening, but then we reclosed. I don't know how you really want to characterize <laughs> it, but, um, you know, there was a lot of pent up demand in the marketplace. And so if you take a, if you look at companies that aren't or haven't been directly impacted by COVID in terms of shutdowns or limit or limited activity, many of these companies are reporting record sales growth and earnings given, you know, the amount of Fed stimulus and monetary stimulus that we've seen in the marketplace. And so um, it, it's been a benefit for sure, and that has helped drive much better credit quality throughout the uh, high yeah. space and credit space in general. Marcus, just quickly in about 30 seconds, what does the impact of policy normalization then have? I mean, I think that's going to be the big question as we go forward, right? Um, we Consumer balance sheets are in great shape. Um, there's low levels of debt, but given the supply chain challenges, how long is the consumer going to stay engaged and wait through those supply chain challenges and be willing to pay higher prices? I mean, I think that's really the huge question that we still don't have an answer to. But as a credit analyst, what I really focus on is just making sure that these companies can kind of manage through the best case scenario and then definitely manage through the worst case scenario. Hey, Marcus, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time and uh, sharing your expertise with us. Marcus Moore, he's an assistant portfolio manager at Zio Capital Advisors, uh, seeing some, uh, even though we've got uh, a big rally, we've had a big rally uh, in bonds pushing those yields down, uh, still see some opportunities in the high yield space here. And so again, as Marcus was suggesting, uh, getting some normalization of policy coming out of Washington over the next uh, several weeks, I guess next several months uh, is going to be uh, one of the near term catalysts one way or the other. We'll have more coming up on all of that. This is Bloomberg. You know, there's this wall of worry out there that Kaylee and I talk about a lot, uh, yet you still see these markets moving higher uh, despite some issues, whether it be coming out of Washington or be supply chain issues uh, or the Fed. I mean, lots of issues out there for investors to uh, figure out and to discount into their valuations and their outlook. Let's turn to a professional now, Lisa Erickson, Senior Vice President and Co-Head of the Public Markets Group at U.S. Bank. They have over $195 billion in assets under management, so they know what they're talking about. Lisa, thanks so much for joining us here. We got a little bit of good news out of Washington this morning. It looks like the U.S. government's not going to default, at least in the next couple of days or weeks. Um, give us your thoughts on these markets here as we, you know, climb higher, but with some increased volatility. Absolutely. Well, Paul, thanks for having us today. And to your point, we still see the outlook for the U.S. equity market as upwards through the end of the year, but with some back and forth and volatile movement, just because of the number of issues going on. And the reason we really have that view is if you look at the 
underpinning for where the market has headed, we really see actually a still nice macro environment as we track hundreds of indicators across the U.S. and the global economy. We still see most readings at pretty high absolute levels and actually a good trend in the direction of those factors, meaning that if you compare their most recent reading to the last month, we're still seeing the majority of those have growth in the direction they're headed. Mm. Uh, But that being said, to your point, there is some wall of worry that the stock market is having to climb. And those really have to do with potentially the range of outcomes in the next few months. You know, our hope is to continue to see some normalization in the supply side and the labor market, which would hopefully then also relieve some of those inflationary pressures. But the trend on that is not clear. So We've got a little bit of back and forth with that and some of the policy issues. And uh, we think, again, the trajectory is up in the near term, but we'll continue to monitor the situation. Well, you were talking about growth there in, in the inflation price growth that we are seeing. It seems that every now and then the market all of a sudden has one day and it's a reckoning of inflation. And, oh, my God, inflation's here. It's going to be persistent. Sell everything. And then the next day, everything is fine. Why is it so hard to get a handle on that? Yeah, great, great question, Kaylee. And we really see what's going on is just that concern over the near-term outlook being murkier. So if you look at the inflation curve, which really measures what the expectations are going out over time, what you actually see is a relatively unusual uh, situation for history, which is that the further out, uh, several years out of inflation expectations are actually lower than what they are today. And so I think really what the market is having a hard time coming to grips with is just in the near term over the next few months and quarters, really, what is that trajectory going to be? And are we going to continue to see the, the higher levels that we've experienced over the last few quarters continue on? Or will we get a more near-term resolution? You know, our base case when we look at our forecast is that that inflation rate, while still elevated compared to history, will come down over the next few quarters. But again, a lot of that depends on the ongoing resolution of the supply side constraints as well as what happens with the labor market. Lisa, earnings start in earnest uh, next week with the big banks starting. What are you looking for? What are you concerned about as we go through this uh, third quarter earnings season? Well, the chief issue on our mind really is around margins. And certainly there's been a lot of talk across the press on the margin issue. And over the last few quarters, stretching back for some time, there's been talk of peak margins. I think the interesting issue has been that despite the fact that everybody's worried that the margins have already peaked, uh, companies have continued to be able to churn out the numbers and maintain those figures. So uh, third quarter will actually be obviously a really interesting time to see how that story is unfolding. Clearly, as, as you guys just pointed out, we are seeing some price increase pressures. And so the question is really going to be the ability to pass through those pressures. And we've had mixed readings so far uh, from companies in recent announcements over the last few weeks. So that is really going to be a key issue that we're going to be looking at. Also, I think the other, the second key issue really is going to be the high bar of expectations. We've had some nice numbers uh, coming out in terms of earnings estimates and sales estimates. Uh, but conversely, because the expectations are robust, that may meet, make it more difficult for companies to beat. That being said, we are overall uh, still optimistic for what uh, the earnings season is going to look like. We've had, again, very nice performance year to date. And uh, as we track some of those companies bottom up, we're seeing 
uh, continued uh, good momentum in how they're managing themselves. So we're hopeful, but we want to see how the numbers actually turn out. Yeah, Paul, I feel like this is a pretty consistent theme for, you know, quarter after quarter. Mm -hmm. Expectations are always (laughs) at the highest you think they could possibly be going into the print. And oftentimes they are exceeded. They've been exceeding expectations by a pretty sizable amount in the past, you know, five quarters or so. The question is if they can continue to do that, given some of those pricing crushers that are out there. Yep. And it's also very much about the the forward guidance that these companies are able to provide. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate uh, you lending us your time and expertise. Lisa Erickson, Senior Vice President and Co-Head of the Public Markets Group at U.S. Bank. They were $195 billion in assets under management based in Minneapolis, so getting that uh, good Midwest look of the economy and of the markets. Well, during this pandemic over the last 18 months, the work from home option uh, has been a godsend for many people. Um, But for some, it's kind of added to the job stresses, if you will, and created some new stresses. Let's get some some details here. Rebecca Ray, Executive Vice President of Human Capital for the Conference Board, joins us. And we should note that uh, World Mental Health Day is this Sunday, October 10th, so it's good timing. Rebecca, talk to us about some of the new, I guess, work stresses that folks are encountering here as we go into, you know, the 18th month of this pandemic and people have been working from home. Sure. Thanks, Paul. So I'm, I'm delighted to share a little bit of the uh, survey results. We asked uh, American workers how they were feeling about their mental health concerns, and we had about 1,800 or so come back and tell us that uh, they're very concerned. Uh, there's nearly 8 in 10 who are concerned about their mental health. You know, we asked this question uh, six months ago, and it was 55%, and now it came back 77%. We're just very concerned about two things in particular – the workload, which has you know, grown exponentially, and blurred boundaries between you know their work lives and their personal lives. And what surprised us about this is that that was well above the percentages that said they were afraid of exposing loved ones to COVID or mm. contracting it themselves. How is it different for women and men? Sure. Well, you know, women uh, did indicate that it was a greater concern for them, 82% versus men at 68. You know, I I think all of us have been impacted and right, wrong, or indifferent. I think elder care and child care still falls disproportionately to women. And so if they feel that uh, at greater heights, it's the combination of those two things that has really taken a toll on women in particular. And I think that's evidenced by the exodus of many women who've had to make some difficult choices and leave the workplace. Rebecca, I've heard from and read a lot of uh, news articles saying that, you know, people are working more. Um, it's tough to switch it off. And as a result, kind of the burnout factor is higher than, than ever. What does your data show? Yeah, we're, we're seeing the same thing. Uh, burnout concerns are skyrocketing. And I think part of this is, you know, early on, uh, I think we asked a lot of workers. And workers, I think, for the most part, tried to step up so that they didn't let their customers down or their clients or their, or their teammates. And, and certainly those who are on the front line or essential workers, there's an additional level of, of um, things that we've asked from them. So, so I think that at the beginning, we were all happy to do it, wanted to do it. We were all swinging for the fence. And I think we thought that this was going to be a sprint, not a marathon. And so now we're 18, 19 months into this, and it has become a marathon for many folks. And I think that has taken – 
a long toll. We we asked about optimism back in April. We've been asking these similar questions for some time now. And there was a great deal more optimism uh, back in April, more excitement about thinking, you know, the, the vaccines are here. We're going to get back into the workplace. It won't be quite the same, but it's the next normal, whatever that might look like. And then we realized that even those plans, you know, had to shift. So it it it, it we need a light at the end of the tunnel. We need people to be optimistic, and that's just not what we're seeing in the data because this has just dragged on for so long. And maybe that helps explain why participation has still remained so low. Even though there's 10 million job openings in the U.S., there's a real struggle to get them filled. If a company is struggling to hire, what, based on the data you've seen, do they need to recognize and be offering workers to make them feel comfortable? Sure. Well, you know, when we asked about the various things that uh, organizations had done to support their the mental health of their workers, you know, and, and many companies have done some really lovely things and put together a, a panoply of options for employees. But when we asked employees what was really helpful, they said most of them were either not helpful or slightly helpful at best, and that was more than half of them. But here's what did work. Of those who said that they had the option for formal policies that support work-life balance and integration, they said that those were the most helpful. So I think companies need to really think about what would flexibility need to look like to attract workers back to the workplace. How can work get done where, by whom, and what, under what circumstances? I think they have to be very thoughtful about this. And the concern that I think companies should have is that flexibility is the key and the path forward because employees have figured out that they have options and you've got to figure out how you're flexible, but also what's the compelling reason for bringing them back to the workplace? It can't simply be so that you can sit, you know, socially distant. And in some cases, some parts of the country having to wear masks. You, you need to think about why are we re-recruiting our employees to come back to the office? <laughs> Fair point. Is this going to be, a, I mean, how competitive of an issue is this? Are, are employees saying, hey, I'm not going to go work someplace uh, where it's mandatory that I come to the office? That's right. You are seeing some people make different choices. They've had some time now to think about this. And for many, they have figured out that this level of flexibility and the ability to integrate their work and their personal lives is where they want to be. We've also got some people who are at the uh, tail end of the boomer generation who are saying, hey, you know what? I can do this virtual thing from an RV in Yellowstone Park. <laughs> I, can, I can squeeze this out for another couple of years. And then you've got some people who are at the apex of their career who are saying, I cannot go back into a commuting or a rigid schedule for the next X number of right. years of my working life, just not doing it. Rebecca, fascinating stuff. We appreciate you sharing the, the contents of this uh, survey. Rebecca Ray, Executive Vice President of Human Capital for the Conference Board. And Kaylee, we thought kind of Labor Day, post-Labor Day, folks will be coming back, but that's not really the case. Yeah, it was supposed to be the great return to the office, and it's gotten pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. And now it seems a lot of companies are saying, hey, we'll see you in 2022. We'll see you in 2022. We're seeing some better numbers and better trends on the COVID and cases, so maybe that will be uh, a catalyst. We'll have more coming up. This is Bloomberg Markets. All right, let's talk the labor market here. We had ADP, uh, some, I guess the U.S. companies added the most jobs in three months. That was a good report. U.S. initial jobless claims this morning came in better than expected. That's good. I kind of feel like we're getting set up for a good uh, non-farm payroll data tomorrow morning. Are we getting set up for some disappointment? I don't know, but it feels like uh, it should be a decent number. Sarah House, Senior Economist and Director for Wells Fargo Security, joins us. Sarah, what are your thoughts here? What are you going to look for tomorrow? Because it feels like you know the consensus is for 500000 That would be a nice gain from the prior month. But 
what are you looking for? Right, so we're looking for a rebound as well, so somewhere uh, near consensus uh, at 535,000. I think a a big factor in in what we're looking for is going to be what happens in terms of participation. So are we seeing some of those supply constraints on the labor supply beginning to ease, and is that filtering Mm -hmm. through to a bigger pool of available workers that companies can actually tap into and get the overall hiring numbers up? Well, let's talk about participation then, because that was supposed to change in the month of September. Kids were back at school, no more additional unemployment benefits. This was supposed to be the month where it a difference was made in that regard. Do you really think we're going to see that? Well, I think we, we are going to see some improvement there. So as you mentioned, we did see some Notable constraints at least begin to ease. So the fact that schools are back in person, um, that you did see the end of unemployment insurance across all states, not just some of those those early enders. And so I think that's going to, to push the labor supply in the right direction. But let's not kid ourselves that these issues aren't going away overnight. So I think, you know, as far as the, the child care issue go, there's still a lot of concerns about, well, are kids going to be back in the classroom consistently? We have still very limited daycare capacity, which is an issue for parents of young children. And then with the unemployment insurance, you know, we've, we've seen only a, a pretty limited impact in the states that ended early. And I think we have to remember that there's a lot of frictions that are involved when searching and getting a, a new job. So you have to identify those jobs, apply, interview, get onboarded. And so I think this is going to be factors that, that play out over months, not just in September. September is not going to be a, a silver bullet just because we turned the calendar. Sarah, talk to us about wage inflation. You know, there's definitely inflation concerns in this marketplace, in this economy, um, when you look at commodities and oil, for example. But, you know, a lot of folks say, hey, you, you're really not going to have problem, problematic or worrisome inflation unless you get meaningful wage inflation. And we haven't really seen that. How are you thinking about wage inflation as we reopen? Well, I think we have seen some some pretty marked increase in, in wages. So, yes, the headline average hourly earnings number has been distorted by some of the compositional effects. But actually, when you think about hiring over, over the past year, so the fact that hiring in leisure and hospitality is up 12 percent um, compared to much more modest gains more broadly, that's your lowest pay industry, the fact that we're still seeing wages up 4.3% over the past year, I think does speak to the fact that employers are ponying up for for those workers. And this really marks a a big change from what we've seen in the past cycle where companies were just loath to raise pay. And yet we've seen um, small businesses right now reporting the, the the most number of small businesses are reporting increasing pay than at any time we, we've seen in history. And so mm-hmm. I think this really does set up the chance that in, inflation does remain perhaps more persistent than a, a lot of folks are, are expecting, um, yeah. just based on looking at what's happening in, in the good sector on the, um, on the supply chain side. Well, and of course, the Fed is looking at that inflation, but it's also looking at the labor market and looking for improvement. And Jerome Powell said at his press conference last month, I want to see a decent report. I will leave the definition of decent up up to you. You're the economist. But does it basically mean unless something catastrophic happens with the print tomorrow, a November taper is baked in? I, I think the chance of a November taper is, is exceptionally good at this point. I think the bar for tomorrow's payroll report, as, as far as the Fed con- is concerned, is is pretty low. So, you know, probably somewhere you would only need 
ballpark of, of 350,000. Even then, it might depend on if we at least see some movement in terms of participation, if we continue to see ongoing wage pressures that um, that raise that inflation risk even even further out. And so I think when, when we factor in um, you know, chances of, of what the Fed might do, this is really the, the last obstacle to overcome. So I think an unsaid risk was they were waiting to see what happened in terms of does the government actually shut down in October? What happens with the debt ceiling? Well, there's more breathing room on that. So I think it's really going to come down to, to what happens with the jobs report tomorrow as far as that November taper announcement. Yes, yeah, sir. You mentioned the you know the temporary raising of the debt ceiling, but it's just kicking a can down the road. How much does all this uncertainty out of Washington, as it relates to fiscal stimulus and spending plans and taxation, how does that factor into your outlook? So it certainly raises raises the risk surrounding the outlook, but I think just even the fact that they they punted a little bit to give themselves more time illustrates that you know particularly when it comes to the debt ceiling, I think they they will eventually do the right thing. We've seen this before, and so um, I think while there's certainly some risk there, I think our, our baseline expectation is still that this will get worked out and that we shouldn't see detrimental effects seep through in, in terms of the the broad the broad economy. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, really appreciate uh, discussing uh, the jobs report and, and uh, kind of the economic outlook. Sarah House, director and senior economist for Wells Fargo Corporate and Investment Bank. And again, the jobs number, looking at the uh, Bloomberg uh, terminal here, the consensus is for 500,000 uh, jobs. That's up uh, markedly from the prior month when 235,000 jobs were added. So again, folks uh, looking for some improvement, some consistent improvement in the job picture tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.